Shem Hashem, Naseh, and Atzliach, Shiu Torah, Baruch Hashem. Great to be here, Aventura. It's, uh, we have a weekly shiur. We are up to Pirkei Avot, Musar Pirkei Avot, number 108, Baruch Hashem. So, uh, so far, we had a uh, interesting last few days. We had Shavuot, good preparation for Shavuot. Learned a lot of new things last Wednesday in uh, the Miami shiur about some things that most people don't even know, which is that Matan Torah is actually the day after Shavuot, not really the day of Shavuot. Uh, and it's very simple to make these mistakes if you don't learn Torah. You assume that you know things, like I assumed I know a lot most of my life, and then you wake up one day and you realize you know nothing, because everything you know is wrong. Without Limud, a person cannot know anything. He can only assume, he can guess, he can estimate. And this is what Hashem Barach tries to remind us day after day to make sure that we realize that without learning Torah every single day, the Gemara says some horrible things about some people like that. It says that a person, in Masechet Psachim, it says that a person who doesn't learn Torah should not be allowed to eat meat. It says that. Masechet Psachim. It's Gemara, Gemara is Mount Sinai. It's not, uh, I didn't write Gemara. They didn't ask me permission. Someone doesn't learn Torah. It doesn't say, what does it mean learn Torah? It says learn every day. Someone that makes time to learn Torah every day. In the morning, at night, half hour here, an hour here, whatever. But he has shiur kavua every day. If he doesn't, Gemara says he shouldn't be allowed to eat meat. Why not? Why is it uh, is a, is a punishment? Because no, it's not a punishment at all. The cow that he's going to eat is fulfilling its purpose. He's not. Why should he eat a cow? To such an extent, this is Kharif. It's, it's, it's a little, it's, it's hard to hear sometimes. I remember when I first heard some of this stuff. I said, hey, hey relax. I said, no, it's Alakha. He says, no, why? Why? Why is, why is Hashem so critical if people don't learn Torah? He says, because if you don't learn Torah, you have no chance to get to the Olam Abba that I built for you. I built you a nice Olam Abba. You can't get there. So what I build it for? For nothing? You keep saying in tefillah, all of Israel have a share of the world to come, but then the pasuk continues, and your nation is all righteous, meaning, who's going to this olam haba? The tzadikim. How can you be a tzadik? You learn Torah. You can't be a tzadik uh, just uh, driving a taxi all day. You don't learn Torah. If you listen to Shul Torah, you can be... You can't be a tzaddik being a plumber all day. You could be a tzaddik if you learn Torah and a plumber. You could do whatever you want to do. But you have to learn Torah with it. So this Pirkei Avot series is one of these series, one of these shurim that is a constant reminder that most of us have learned the truth, you know, incorrectly. Meaning... We learned a different version of the truth, the false version. Because most of our life we thought that money was the most important thing, a career is the second most important thing, having a wife and kids is number three, and everything else, all the toys maybe after. As you get older, though, that list, the priority list changes. 
But you wake up one day and you start realizing, listen, if money was all of it, if Hashem created the whole world just for money, how come He allows the people to be broke? How come He allows people to go homeless? So what, there's a section of the human population that has no purpose, they have no money? As a matter of fact, if you make over $350,000 a year, you're one of the top 1% of income earners on the planet out of 8 billion people approximately. $300,000, anyone with a solid career could tell you it's not that much money. Now, somebody doesn't have a career, or someone that's still new, still in their 30s or 40s in their career, they haven't been doing the same thing for so many years, or they just chose a blue-collar career, $300,000 is a lot of money. But for the high earners of the world, $300,000 is not a lot. So to say that a guy that makes 300000 is one of the top 1% in the entire planet, that's saying a lot. But Hashem is telling you that this person that makes 300000 or 400000 or 300 million, or 400 million, doesn't make a difference, it's all the same. If he doesn't learn Torah, he has no point. Even if he gives tzedakah. If he gives tzedakah, he gives every dollar tzedakah. Warren Buffett gave all of his money to Tzedakah. He says he did, even though it's a tax write-off. Bill Gates' buddy also said, I wrote everything I'm giving to Tzedakah after I die. Not really Tzedakah, it's write-off. It's like fake Tzedakah. It's like Tzedakah to make people think that you're a nice guy. But it's not really Tzedakah. It's good for taxes, though. But all of these rich people on the Forbes 500 list have begun this plan over the last 10 years that is encouraging one another to give away all of their money after they die. Anyone with money knows that it's all one big sham just to fool the IRS. You don't have to give any, any taxes. But let's say they gave it to Tzedakah. Let's say. Let's say they did. Let's say they were tzaddikim. If they didn't learn Torah, if they were Jews and they didn't learn Torah, they still wouldn't have Olam Abba. Why? You have to go to Torah. You have to, you have to know what to do. If you didn't make time to learn Torah, that means there's no way for you to be able to keep Shabbat properly. You can think you're keeping Shabbat every week, but every week you're violating Shabbat with things you don't even know exist. You can think you're keeping the Chag, Shavuot, Pesach, Sukkot, all of that, but if you don't learn Torah, how are you going to know? So that's the thing, Rabotai, is that this series gives us constant reminders that every single one of us has to look in the mirror. And ask ourselves, what am I really doing in this world? It's not for money. There's no way in the world that I came to the world just to make money. Why? Because I have plenty of friends that have plenty of money, but that are unhappy, they're miserable, they're divorced 500 times, they have uh, kids with different women, they don't even know who the, who the, who's what, who's this, this. They haven't achieved their purpose. You ask them, do you think you fulfilled your purpose? They'll tell yourself, no. What's your purpose? I don't know. Still looking. Yeah, but you're 60 years old, you're 70 years old now. When are you going to find it? So, money can't be it. Marriage, there's plenty of people in the world are still looking for wives. Plenty of people in the world are still looking for husbands. Baruch Hashem, I got the good news today. One of my students, Baruch Hashem, is going to be get married very soon. They decided, both parties decide they're going to get married very soon. Baruch Hashem, there's always good news. The reason why is this generation, they say we have a shiduch crisis. There's a shiduch crisis in a firm world, in a religious world, there's a shiduch crisis, meaning that the uh, girls can't find the guys and the guys can't find the girls, but they're both looking for each other. So I always like to tell people, this is not a shiduch crisis, because there's girls, Baruch Hashem, there's plenty. And there's guys, Baruch Hashem, there's plenty. 
So why are they not getting married? Because of the midot crisis. It's a character trait crisis. People don't know how to behave. The guy wants a girl that he saw on the television. He thinks that that makes a good housewife if he sees on TV and she's half naked. The girl wants the guy on television that has a, a car that's more expensive than a house. They both want to be supermodels. They both expect each other to be perfect. The minute that the guy sneezes the wrong way, she's, oh no, he's not for me. Why? Why not? Oh, he's not for me. He's, uh, he's too angry. What too angry? What did he do? He sneezed. He sneezed the wrong way. Oh, he doesn't come from the right family. What's the right family? No, big rabbi, Talmud Chacham. Do you come from the right family? No, but that's why I want one. People want what they don't have themselves. Why? Because we can point at everybody else. No, he's wrong and she's wrong and he's wrong and she's wrong. No one does this. No one does Me, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I need to do something. So it's not a shiduch crisis, rabotai, it's a midot crisis. People need to do tshuva. Religious, not religious, doesn't make a difference. Everybody needs to do tshuva. Tshuva has nothing to do with religion. Tshuva means you have to fix yourself. Without Torah, it's impossible for you to fix yourself because it's the only instruction set available. So Hashem is doing us a chesed to give us this Torah and to force us to learn it. Why? It's the only way you're going to fix yourself. That's the instructions. So we have people with money, but still no purpose. People with marriage, but still no purpose. People with kids, but still no purpose. Kids can't be the purpose. Plenty of people... Trying to have kids, but they can't. So what, you're telling me that all those people have no purpose in the world? Plenty of people have plenty of kids, but they're still, you really want to be their friend. They're not nice people. So we know that, obviously, this creator thought of this question before he created us. So he told us, I created you for a purpose. I didn't create anything for no purpose. There has to be a purpose. Everything has to be have a purpose. The purpose is Rabotai, for all of the mitzvot, the Gaon Mivilna, Allah Shalom, said time and time again, the reason why correcting your midot, fixing your character trait, is not one of the mitzvot, it's not one of the 630 mitzvot, is because that's the point of all of the mitzvot. Meaning, if you had to choose, fulfill the mitzvot, or fix your midot, it's not really a question. Why? Because if you're actually doing the mitzvot properly, automatically you're fixing your midot. If you're fixing your midot, automatically you're doing the mitzvot. It's not one or the other. Now today we have one of the most difficult issues to deal with. One of the most difficult problems that I could look in the mirror on every day and hopefully one day it changes. For myself and I think for most people. And the midah of anger, the character character trait of anger, that the Ramban, Allah Shalom, in Igeret Ramban, the letter that he wrote his son, one of the most important letters that was ever written, he says this is the worst character trait in the world. He had a list of character traits, and as good and as bad and so on, you have a list. This one's the worst one, according to the Ramban. Anyone that suffers from anger immediately agrees with the Ramban, wants to read the rest of his books. He's like, oh, he's onto something. He knows a few things. Why? Because anger, anger, what's anger, Bemit? What's anger, Bemit? 
Think about it. Anger is somebody made you angry. If nobody made you angry and you're angry, then you have to go to an institution, a barbanel, or in Yerushalayim, they have a few place for you. You go over there, they'll take care of you. If you're angry for no reason, then we have a different place for you. But if you're angry because somebody made you angry, that means you're normal. But what does it mean, though? Anger is you are drinking poison. The anger is poison. But you're expecting him to die. You're angry at him. You think that your anger is going to fix the situation with him or with her or whatever it is. But in reality, you're feeding yourself poison. Because once a person gets angry, all of the wisdom that he actually had in his head goes away. This is why the worst things in the world that a person does is usually because he's angry. And remember, you know, you got to learn even from your sins. When uh, before tshuva, before we learned anything about the truth, I tell you guys all the time, I used to play poker because I thought it was fun. And uh, I was a good player. I was able to do math and I had plenty of money so I didn't have any fear. Few, there's a few things that you need to have as a poker player and I had the tools. But one thing I learned from poker is that it doesn't matter if you have all the tools. You could have all the money in the world. You could have the best math skills on planet Earth. You can know all the numbers. You can know all the shitod. You can have all the different things and still be a loser at the end of the day. Why? Because of anger. There's one thing that anger in poker is called tilt. Being on tilt. Meaning you have something happened. The waitress didn't give you your drink. The dealer misdealt the hand. The other guy's making fun of you. You got a bad hand. Something happened. It could be something, it's nine out of ten times something stupid. Nothing big deal happened in the world. Your wife called you in the middle of the game. I don't know, something happened. Somebody spilled a drink on you. Whatever, something happened. All of a sudden you're angry and you don't realize that you're angry even. Sometimes you don't realize you're angry and you continue playing. And now the entire table can read your face like it's a map. If you have good hand, they know. So they don't play you. If you have a bad hand, they know. They play you. They know when you're cheating. They know when you're, not cheating, when you're bluffing. They know when you're, all those different things. They know what's going on. They can read you like a map. And then you start losing. And then you get on a real tilt. Why? Now you're just playing just to get them back. And that's what they've been waiting for for 12 hours. Some of them, 20 hours, they're waiting for for somebody to get angry. Those people that parked in the casinos, that's, they make their career to be a loser in a casino. So what do they do? The whole time, that you see some of them, I'm telling you, I used to, it used to make me, drive me crazy until I understood what it, what it was, the whole thing. Because they're just sitting there all day, sitting there, they're reading a newspaper, sitting there, reading a newspaper, sitting there, reading. I'm like, don't you have something to do? You have a job or something, or family, or kids, or something to do, go eat. He's sitting there for hours. I'm talking about five, like a work, work day. My master, like a work day. And he's not playing. You have a table. There's nine people. Ten people sometimes. And everybody's playing, except this one guy. He's reading a newspaper. He's playing on his phone. He's doing this. He's completely disassociated at all. I, I ask myself, why are these people here? Why are they here? Why'd you come? If you're not going to play. He has a bunch of money in front of him. So it means that he, he's here to play. But he's not playing. All of a sudden, somebody gets angry at the table. 
The moment somebody gets angry at the table, the paper goes down, the coffee cup here, the glasses are arched. Commando. Why? He's been waiting for you to get angry for 15 hours. Now he's going to play. Why? Because now he knows for sure you're going to win. Because as soon as you have anger, you're not thinking straight. So the price of anger, regardless of which world you want to look at, is very, very expensive. Now in this book, which I recommend to everybody, and actually you don't need to take my recommendation, you can take the recommendation of all of G'dolei Ador. This is the only book I've ever seen. Well, all of the G'dolei Ador in recent generations signed off that this is the best book. Rav Kanievsky, his father, the Stipe Gaon, Rav Ovadia, everyone. Mamash, it's a list, and the list is almost three pages of people that actually said that this book changed their life. It's called Remove Anger from Your Heart. This is one, this is a series of books in Hebrew. It's a series of books in Hebrew. This is the only one that I know of that was translated to this English and Hebrew. In Hebrew they have, I don't know, maybe several books, I think a dozen or so books or so in a series, maybe less. And he works, no more, um, but he works on every single midah, every single character trait. This specific one is about anger. And he lists, as part of the teaching, he lists 42 different midot, 42 different character traits, and they're opposite. So I'll give you some examples. Cruelty, ignoring others. The opposite of that is being compassionate and kind. Wasting time. Wasting your time, other people's time, people that waste time, people like to waste time. The opposite is somebody that treasures time, intense study. Uh, confusion. Somebody that's constantly confused, never knows what he wants to do. So this per- the opposite of that is somebody that's disciplined, makes a decision and sticks to it. Arrogant. Opposite is obviously humility. Arrogance, the Gemara says, someone that's arrogant can get to a point where even his own family hates him. Worry. Somebody that's always worried. You give him a solution. He goes, yes, but what about the other problem? Yeah, but you didn't ask me about the other problem. Let's just worry about this problem now. Yeah, but I'm worried. Okay, you're always going to be worried. You know what worry means? What worry means? Simple. All of these shiurim that people like to go to, they always think, yeah, but how do I solve my anxiety? How do I solve my worry? I'm always worried. How do I solve that? I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my husband. I'm worried about my wife. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried. I'm worried. What is the, what's, what's the solution to all worry? Emuna. Learn to believe in Hashem. And sadly, as Rav Avigdor Mila, Allah Shalom, used to say, most people, even if they have a beard much longer than his, don't believe in Hashem. He says he's talking. When he says they don't believe in Hashem, he says, I'm not talking about the secular people. So I'm talking about the religious people, the fruit people. Most people don't believe in Hashem. They believe in a Hashem. He says, but to them, it's really just the word in the Sidu. Just the word in the Sidu. That's all it is. They don't really believe in Hashem. Because if we believed in Hashem, we'd never worry. Someone that has ugly habits. I can name you a dozen ugly habits that people have and they think it's a good habit. One thing that I know is that a lot of people like to haggle. They think it's business. When they haggle back and forth, the guy, they agree on a price. Listen, negotiating is important. You need to negotiate. If you're going to be business, you're going to negotiate. But there's a time and a place for it. After you've made the deal, there's no more negotiation. If you made a deal 
And he said, okay, I agreed to buy or sell this thing for $5,000. And the other party says, okay, fine, no problem. And then they do the job, and they bring you the goods. They say, oh, here's the goods. Can I have my $5,000? Oh, listen, I don't have all the money right now. I, uh, I can give you 2500 now, and 2500 in uh, two months, three months from now. Yeah, but that wasn't the deal. Okay, if you want the whole thing, I'll give you 4500 So obviously you don't have 2500 you have 4500 you're just trying to save 500. This is illegal, according to the Torah. You're not allowed to do such things. You already had agreed. You agreed, agreed. He did, he did the job based on the original agreement. You can't change the deal now. And a lot of people do this because they know that once the guy already did the job, he's desperate. He needs the money because he needs to pay for the goods. He already paid for them. He needs to get the money back. This is not allowed. This is an ugly habit. Flattery. People that like to tell people that tzaddikim. For absolutely no reason whatsoever, because they know that they're going to get people to give the money now. Oh, come, come, Sadiq, come, Sadiq. What Sadiq? The guy just killed six people on the way here to Beknesset. What Sadiq? How is he a Sadiq? He's a Michalel Shabbat. He drove on Shabbat to the Beknesset. Why are you calling him a Sadiq for? The Gemara says very, very bad things about people that call people Sadiqim for no reason. Flattery is an ugly thing, it's a sin from the Torah. But also seeing fl- faults. If you look at people and you only see the bad thing about them. What about the good? What about the fact that he's generous? What about the fact that he's, he's, uh, you know, he's smart? What about all the good things about him? All he sees bad, he's Amalek, that's it. People always tell me, listen, you know, I, uh, I get really angry when, uh, when I tell people the truth and they don't listen. I said, so stop telling them. Like, Wait a minute, don't, don't I need them to do tshuva? I said, no, you need to do tshuva first. If you helping other people is getting you angry, that means you're not helping them. That means you're just telling them what to do. So as soon as they don't listen to you, it has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with God. It has to do with you. You want people to listen to you. If you want people to listen to you, stop telling them anything. Start doing it, they'll do it. So people that get angry because they see flaws in other people, they have to start judging favorably. They're not all bad. Of course, you hate the sin, not the sinner. But the point is is that you can't just uh, do things your own way. There's a way. There's a right way and a wrong way to do everything. Ingratitude, somebody that gets everything handed to them, but then says thank you. Some people think that the world owes them something. Oh, yeah, I went to this... Uh, I got this car. The guy didn't even say thank you after I bought it from him. Okay, so maybe he forgot. Maybe you didn't hear him. Oh, I went to this uh, wedding, and you know, they never even sent me a thank you card for attending. Oh, that's where you attended? You attended the wedding so they could send you a thank you card? Or sometimes you see people, their parents give them something. They give them a car. Like I saw one time this video, this young, I don't know, maybe 17-year-old kid. They made a video of this. And it's a real video. 17-year-old kid, his parents bought him a uh, truck. They bought him a truck. But it was an old truck. Oh, maybe like uh, 10 years old, something like that. He's 17. He's lucky he even has a car. Nobody bought me a car when I was 17. But anyway, he has a, gets a truck. He sees the truck. He looks at his father's brand new truck. He sees his truck. He decides to go back into his house, 
comes out with a bat, a baseball bat, a metal baseball bat, and starts smashing the, the truck that he bought him. Why? Because it's not brand new. Because it's not brand new, and his father's is brand new. That's it. Instead of saying thank you, kissing his parents' feet, for, for, for giving him anything, Bechlal, for giving him a house, giving him food, and on top of it giving him a car, what does he do? He ruins it. That's a kfuy tova. And it's one of the few people that the Torah says Hashem hates him. How do you stop being a kfuy tova? Someone that's ungrateful? You have to learn Torah. You have to learn. When, when, are you all, when, when, is, it, when, when is it right? And you see, never. Evil speech, gossip, people like to talk about other people. Oh, you know what she was wearing, you know what she was doing, you know how much money he has. The guys that used to work for me, for some reason or another, I don't know, I guess this is something that's from this generation. I don't think this happened in previous generations because my parents, Baruch Hashem, they never talked about this stuff. Growing up, I never heard it. But this generation, for some reason, people love to talk about other people's money. I don't know why. What do you care how much money he has? He's not paying your bills. He's not going to send you a check. In my opinion, it's the lowest form of conversation. It's when you completely ran out of things to say. The, the, the brain over there is empty. It says, restart, restart, restart. So you're not restarting. So what do you do? You talk about other people's money. Oh, you know, he signed the contract with the company and with this, and now he's going to make a half a million and two million. What do you care? Why do you care that he has this money or she has this money? What difference is it to you? If he's a client or a prospective client and the amount of money that he has or doesn't have means something to you, meaning you're only going to do business with him if he has a certain amount of money. Like I know, for example, when I was in the business world, if you didn't have at least $500,000 liquid, meaning cash that you could invest, I couldn't deal with you. Why? Because we dealt with that type of client. So how much money you had mattered to me. I still would never talk about your money. But that was one of the questions I would ask you before we actually started doing business. But after the conversation, I cared less. When my employees would come to me and say, listen, uh, this guy, just talk to him. He has 20 million, he has this. Okay, okay, fine. Is he interested? No, but you have to talk to him. I said, that's all I care about. I don't care about how much money he has. All I care about, if he's a client, then I care. If he's a client, then I care how much money he has. If he's not a client, it's the same thing to me as a name on a newspaper. Means nothing. But people love to talk about baseball players' money and basketball players and celebrity money. Why? Why? It's also considered Lashonara. It's considered Lashonara. Now let's talk about them. What if you're talking to somebody about their money and that person is their enemy? They don't like they're gonna hear that their their enemy is doing something good. They're gonna try to ruin it now. Or somebody that's a uh, shyster looking to steal. It's like, ah, you told me who in the neighborhood has money? Okay, I'm going to go to him now. He's, he's now the target. You put a bullseye in a guy's head. Why? People that are dirty, obviously we have to be clean. All these people that walk around thinking that they're chassidim without taking a shower the whole week. This is a sin from the Torah. You're not allowed to do such things. Nowhere in the Torah does it allow you to be a dirty person. If you have no choice because you're homeless, miskin, poor you. Bezal Hashem, Am will help you. Get out of the streets. But the people that electively do not take showers the whole week, by choice, and even when they do, they have this minag in some places in the world where they don't use soap on purpose because they think that the odor from a, uh, from a, from a body is okay. 
Now you're right about the previous generations, you know, 3,000 years ago maybe. They were all in the desert. And they were all Kodesh Kodeshin because they had the Torah from Mount Sinai. They didn't smell. Today we have sins, we have bio, we have all types of problems. You smell in five minutes, you don't take a shower. There's no such thing. You have to use soap. Being dirty is Chilul Hashem. Somebody that's not religious or somebody that is religious sees somebody that's supposedly more religious than them walking around with a uh, cloud of, of, of smell behind him, following him. He says, if this is what religious means, I don't want to be religious. Not allowed. Someone that wants to take revenge. Revenge belongs to Hashem. There's a Tehillim you read every Wednesday. Every day you read it, but specifically on Wednesdays also. El nekamot Hashem. El nekamot ofia. Hashem, he's the, he's the master of revenge. No one else is allowed to do it. I'll give you an example. A lot of people were surprised at some of the things I said last week or two weeks ago about the Zionists. Now, I'm not Neturei Karta, and I think that they are an abomination to the world, quite frankly. But I'm also not a Zionist. And the reason why is because to be a Zionist means you have to be a Kofir. Now, most people that consider themselves Zionists don't consider themselves Kofirim because they don't know that the two are connected. The original Zionists were evil communists that did everything they possibly could to destroy the Torah. And you can find this online. This is not a conspiracy anymore. This is all out in the, uh, in the open. There's been trials about it. There's been congressional meetings about it. There's been articles and documentaries about it. It's not me. It's just that you may have, may, maybe you haven't heard it. I, have, I didn't hear it until I heard it either. The point is, is that it's real. It's not a conspiracy. Herzl Machimo had a ongoing dialogue with the Pope, the Catholic Pope, where his solution, Herzl's solution, not the Pope's solution, Herzl's solution to eliminate anti-Semitism was what? To convert all of the Jews to Catholicism, just like he converted his own son. This is written in the letters. He wrote it himself. Herzl wrote it. And there's still streets in Israel named after him and statues and everything. People think he's a tzaddik. Ben-Gurion was no better. Ben-Gurion, Imachimo, was such an egotistical human being that when there's a very famous mikre that happened, there's many with him, there's a very famous event that took place when his competitor, Menachem Begin, came to Israel in 1948. He came on a ship called Altalina. And Altalina had him and many other Jews on the ship. And Ben-Gurion knew that if they're coming in, that's competition. Ben-Gurion had uh, the uh, Tzal, IDF, and uh, Menachem Begin had the, something called Irgun. Ben-Gurion didn't want competition. So what did he decide to do? What does a normal person do? He doesn't want competition. He beats the competition. No person beats them civilly. You know, you're not in a zoo. You're not in a jungle. But what does a person without Torah do? He decided to tell his soldiers to shoot the ship down. And they shot the ship down. And killed many people. Begin actually survived. By Chazdei Hashem. But people died. And Gurion 
said this cannon that blew up the ship and killed Jewish people is a holy cannon. Like we have a holy Torah, we have holy Luchot Abrit, we have holy Bet HaMikdash. He says the cannon that shot down and killed Jewish people is a holy cannon. So you see that without Torah, a person can make their own rules and rationalize them. So this is not a conspiracy. This is not. This is just a reality. It's a reality. And it's a reality we all need to know because right now we're in a very confusing days. Mashiach is around the corner. We have confusing news from different avenues. Sometimes the religious people look worse than the secular people. Sometimes the secular people, we don't even know if they're Jewish anymore. There's a lot of things going on. So without knowing the 100% truth, we're not going to know where we stand ourselves. And that's why the Gemara says, before Ben David comes, before the Mashiach comes, it's only going to come for a generation full of righteous or full of wicked. Meaning, not that everyone's going to be righteous, and not that everyone's going to be wicked. That's not possible. Either one is not possible. But it means that there's not going to be anyone in the middle anymore. Everyone has to make a choice. Everyone has to make a choice. Yeah, you can fact check everything I say. Go ahead. Chabot, Chabot. I have a picture. My dad was on Yad Oh, okay. Two of his friends died at the end. Daniel Levy and David Mitran and Daniel Levy. Hashem in Komen Damav. My father's arms. I have pictures of my father with Begin. I was just showing him the other day. Wow, wow. There you go. You see how Hashem runs the world? You see how Hashem runs the world? What are the chances? You do all the statistics in the world. Baruch Hashem, it's the first time I'm ever meeting him. It's the first time I'm in Shiur. I'm mentioning this information for the first time in uh, four or five years I'm doing Shiur. It's the first time I'm mentioning this information. And the person that's a, a witness to everything I just told you is in the crowd. Come on. That's how Hashem runs the world. That's how Hashem runs the world. Hashem, it's Mama Siyatid Bishmaya. So, you see that all of the things... We say we don't say it to, to create problems. We don't say it because we have uh, we have uh, anything in it. We're saying it because truth is the only way to survive, especially in a generation right now with so much confusion. So, unfortunately, in the world without Torah, truth cannot exist. Truth cannot coexist with in a place without Torah. And the reason why is because Torah is the truth, the chotemet of Hashem, the signature of Hashem is emet, truth. Meaning that everything outside of it is false. Everything outside of it is false. So, of course, the Yetzirah works very, very hard to convince us that we are living a life of truth, whether we're secular or religious, or we're male or female, we're Jews, non-Jews, doesn't make a difference. But the reality is, is that the only way for us to know for sure if we're living the truth is if we're doing exactly what Or Israel, Rabbi Israel Misalan said, if we're fact-checking ourselves. We compare ourselves to what it says in the Torah. You have a list of things. 
this I need to do. Am I doing it? There's a list of things not to do. Am I not doing them? Forget about like, don't like. Forget about bottom line. Let's get to the bottom line. Am I doing this? If I'm not, that means that there is falsehood in my life. There's a price for it. So the list continues as far as the bad midot, but you guys get the point. But he says out of all of those bad midot, the Ramban specifically targets anger as the worst one. Because anger, once a person has anger, it opens up the door for all types of genom to start controlling him. All of the other sins that come now have free ride, free opening. They have a, get a, they have a ticket to go in now whenever they want. So this Mishnah in Avot, hey, Yudalit, 5.14, it says the following, Arba midot bedeot, noach lichos venoach lirzot, yetzas charo beefsedo, kashe lichos vekashe lirzot, yetza efsedo bescharo, kashe lichos venoach lirzot, chasid, noach lichos vekashe lirzot, rasha, so most likely not going to go over all four of them, but I'll translate everything I just said. The Mishnah here says that there are four types of temperament. Four types of temperament. One who is angered easily and pacified easily. His gain is offset by his loss. Meaning, every little thing makes him angry, but you can make, you could calm him down pretty quickly too. He's not one of these people that keeps it for six weeks and he's still angry at something that happened. Most likely he's not a female because they're angry for at least 20 years in a row most of the time. If they're angry at their husband, they remember that he did something 25 years ago. Yeah, 25 years ago you didn't pick me up on time. What? How do you remember that? You don't remember what we bought from the store yesterday. I remember very clearly. It was rainy and I went... How do you remember? If a woman remembers... If she, you're, you upset her, she remembers for the rest of your life. Don't make her angry. Warning. You heard it here. Happy wife, happy life, guys. So, first one is a person that gets angry quickly, but also pacified easily. The Mishnah says his gain is offset by his loss, meaning whatever he gains out of being you know, pacified easily, that he doesn't keep the anger in him, Unfortunately, he loses it because he's going to get angry really quickly. And we're going to go into the details of what all of this means anyway. The second one is a person who is hard to anger. Alvai. Someone who doesn't get angry often. Someone who it's actually hard to anger him. But it's also hard to pacify him. Meaning once he gets angry, Hashem Yachem. Once he gets angry, just as hard as he... 20 years he hasn't gotten angry. But once he got angry, he's angry now for 20 years. He hasn't got angry all week, but he got angry now, and now he's angry for two weeks. So it says the same thing about him. His loss is offset by his gain. Meaning he has a great reward from not being angry often, but the problem is that the fact that he's angry for a long time, he loses whatever he gains out of it. And I'll explain to you why it's worded differently shortly. The third one is one who's hard to anger, but is pacified easily. That's, Mishnah calls, that's the real chasid. What people always think, chasidim, what's chasidim? Is a person that wears black and white? No, it has nothing to do with black and white. 
The original Hasidim didn't wear black and white. Black and white is only a recent invention. A Hasid, according to the Torah, is someone that does above and beyond what's required of him. Like I said to you guys several times in the last few weeks, because this has been mentioned a few times, Hasidut is above and beyond the law. Here in the Shiurim, we focus on the law. Focus on the basic minimum requirement. Anything that I tell you, just know by default is the minimum requirement. It's nothing more. If it's more, I specifically say this is more. Why? Because the reality is in our generation, and really every generation, because there's nothing new under the sun, the minimum requirement is such a big burden on those few that don't know the truth that to teach them anything above it is just a waste of time. And sometimes a person that doesn't have the truth of Torah will replace the minimum with something above the minimum. So they'll become a chassid on something. So for example, let's say you're supposed to be tzanua. You're supposed to be, whether you're a male or a female, you have to be modest. And you're also supposed to represent, be a, look good enough to represent Hashem. You can't look like a bum on purpose. You have to take care of yourself if you can, and so on and so forth. So from here, the Midat Chassidut will say, listen, if you're supposed to be modest, male or female, and if you're supposed to look presentable, that means that you should wear black and white. You should wear black and white. Why? Because that's always going to make you presentable. Now someone that's a plumber or some other type of blue-collar worker is going to have a hard time with fulfilling this, this issue, this, this, this extra thing. So he's constantly going to have to change himself because every time he goes to shul, he can't come with his, you know, let's say police officer uh, clothes because everybody's going to look at him like he has three heads. You come with a uniform to, to a Bet Chabad, to a, uh, to a Bet Hasidut of some kind. You're not wearing black and white. No, you're not one of us. You're wearing a police uniform. You're wearing a fire uniform. I'm not saying he's dirty. I'm not saying he's wearing a garbage pail on top of him. He's still presentable, just he's not wearing that. Or perhaps he's wearing a blue shirt. You know, in some places... If they can, I'm telling you, I'm serious about this. I actually, I, 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 I witnessed the story. A parents called, parents called, and they said, listen, I think my son is off the derech. I think my son is off the derech. Now, these are really religious people. So for them to say my son is off the derech, Shemirachem, meaning the son, to me, off the, what does off the derech means? Off the derech means he's Mechel Shabbat, he's going out with a Goya, he's eating pork on Yom Kippur. That's what off the derech means. What did he say? He said, oh, he started to wear a blue shirt. I said, excuse me? Yeah, he started to wear a blue shirt. You know, he's not wearing, you know, he's not, he's not wearing white. He started like... Rachman Ali Tzlan, he's wearing a blue shirt. I said, that's off the derech. Alvai wears a blue shirt for the rest of his life and is normal. That's what you consider. Alvai, that's the biggest problem he has the rest of his life. But that's the thing. Sometimes people are so connected to their minagim that they forget the ikar. They forget the real foundation, the most important. So yes, to be a chassid is great. But don't be a chassid at other people's expense. So here, you want to be a chassid? This is the place to be a chassid. Last week we talked about you want to be a chassid? Start with your money. Be a chassid with money. 
Hashem says you have to be generous. Be extra generous. Let's see how much of a chassid you really are. You want to be a chassid? Even more than money. Do this. Not only never get angry. Not never. It says heart anger. Heart anger because everybody gets angry. Even Moshe Rabbeinu got angry. Heart anger, meaning you're not a typical hothead. It takes you a while to get angry. But on top of it, you pacified easily. That even after you finally got angry, you haven't got angry in six months, finally you got angry, they say, I'm sorry, or something happened, you just let it go. Okay, fine, fine. fine. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Forget it. Let it go, let it go. That's chassid. That's chassid. Not only you don't get angry, but you forgive easily. You want them to forgive you in Shemaim easily? Forgive easily. That's a true chassid. One time there was a guy who wanted to give a shoe about anger. Right before the shoe, somebody put a uh, cup, wanted to, forget, wanted to be nice. Wanted to put a cup of tea for the rabbi. Put a cup of tea. He didn't realize there was something under the cup. So, so the rabbi pulled it, and the guy pulled the, his hand back. The cup spilled all over the rabbi. Rabbi said, hey, well, you don't pay attention. What's the matter with you? It's hot tea. You could have hurt me. This. Okay, okay, guys. No, let's go back. Let's, let me teach you about how not to get angry. You just get angry yourself. You get tests every day. You can't be angry. You have to, you have to control yourself. So if you're already going to get angry, make sure that you forgive easily. Get, uh, get, uh, don't get pacified easily. Last but not least, one who gets angered easily and is also hard to pacify. Torah calls that person Rasha. Rasha. Why? Not only is he a walking time bomb, he's a walking grenade. Time bomb is the other guy. This guy's a grenade. He just going to explode every 15 seconds. But on top of it, you make him angry, he's never going to forgive you. He hates you for years. Why? What happened? Yeah, you stole my bike when we were six. Okay, you're 36, buddy. You're 36 years old. You're 36. You don't have the bike. I'll get you a bike. Come on, get your bike. Come on, get your bike. What is it? No, no, it's the point. It's the. I didn't know the point. I was six. That's a person. A person's hard to pacify. Don't be that guy. Why? Because that is, by definition, a rasha. So here we see that we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. First, we have to understand. Now, if you notice, it doesn't say, this Mishnah doesn't say about a person who never gets angry. It doesn't mention, it doesn't say, it says there's four types of temperament. And it names all four of them. Angry quickly, angry late. But it doesn't say, a fifth one where a person just doesn't get angry. Because that does not exist. Doesn't exist. Everyone gets angry. The difference between one person and the, and the other is how they react once anger happens. That's the difference. So, the Midrash Tanchuma, chapter 12, says... It's also mentioned in the Gemara in a couple of different places that a person's character is determined through kiso, koso, vekaso. Who he is, who a person really is, you can determine it based on three different things. His pocket, kiso. His cup, koso. And his anger, kaso. Why? Kiso.
his pocket means that whether he's generous or he's stingy tells a lot about a person. Why? Because one of the most, one of the biggest triggers, I should say, one of the biggest triggers for most anger in the world is money. Nine out of ten arguments are about money. Sometimes you see a family love each other, they go on vacation with each other, they have holidays with each other, they send little nice text messages to each other, hey, I love you, hey, I miss you, hey, Shavua Tov, hey, Baruch Haba, hey, Mazal Tov. Everybody loves each other. Oh, they see each other, Kapa Alecha, I love you, you know, I... All these words, you know, show of love, especially the Mizrahim, the the the, uh, the Sephardics. We show we're very affectionate people, very affectionate people. But once the Saba dies, once the grandfather that has ten, twenty million in the bank dies, all of a sudden, I told you Kapa Alech, I meant for you to die. I didn't mean for you me to die for you. You die, I need the money. The money, you have already plenty of money. Give me the money. My kids need the money. Everybody starts fighting over the money. All of a sudden, he's not your brother. All of a sudden, she's not your wife. All of a sudden, you don't know the kids. People, mamash, are willing to destroy each other. Why? Money. One time, I had a client who built a company. I told you guys about this client a few times. Really nice guy. Died, Allah shalom. Name was Turlip. Wonderful person. Did a lot of business with him. And uh, we made a lot of money together. But also throughout the, the, the relationship, we talked, chit-chatted. And uh, after a while, we did some business together. He recommended his, his kids to me, which he built a big company. And... Uh, by default, after he got older, he started giving pieces of the company to his kids. And his kids had plenty of money. One day, he tells me, listen, from now on, don't share any information or this or that with this kid. There's a big problem. What happened? He found out that his uh, son's wife was cheating on him. So he told, he confronted him. He told him, listen, your, your, your wife is this and that. In the beginning, the son listened to him. Who wants to be with a wife that's cheating on him? But then, after a while, somehow she snuck her way back into his house. And she pleaded with him to take her back. And obviously he wasn't Jewish, so he could take her back. If you're a Jew, your wife cheats on you, you're never allowed to be with her. Doesn't make a difference if she's Malkata Yofi, she's the most beautiful woman in the world, she's rich, she's this, she, it doesn't make a difference, she could cry blood. Once a woman, once a wife has been with another man, you're never allowed to be with her. But a non Jew is different. According to the Torah, a woman that cheats on her husband, Chayav Mita, death penalty. Because this is one of the seven Noahide laws. The point being here, these people obviously didn't follow, not this one, not that one. But he decided to take her back to fool. So the father, my, my, my main client, 
told him, listen, you're taking her, she's, she's a desecration to our family, she's an embarrassment, she's this, she stole from the company, she did this, pick Balagan. So the kid, instead of like trying to make peace with his father, what does he do? He takes the wife's side. And starts going to war with his father. And starts to take money from his father, that's all of it is his money anyway. And pr- starts pretending like it's all his, like he did all of it. Mamash, the amount of problems I went through with these people over a few years, the guy completely lost his mind. Lost his mind. How he started behaving completely changed. Oh, what? Money. Money. I know a few clients that literally went to war with each other because they were related, and then the parent died. And they fought off the inher- uh, fought because of the inheritance. One got more, the other one got less. It's not right, it's not fair, it's not this, it's not that. And I've seen countless stories. I was in the money business. Countless stories of families destroyed because of money. So the Torah tells us the first thing we need to know, in order to know who you are, is how is your pocket? Meaning, how do you treat money? Is money everything to you or just a tool? If money is everything to you, we don't need to know the rest. We already know what you are. Money is your God. We know how to please you. We know how to make you mad. We know what moves you. We know what doesn't move you. We know the rest of it. The rest of we're not going to ask you it. No more. No more questions, Your Honor. We're finished. We already know what's going to happen here. Why? If money is your life, that's it. We're finished. We're finished. We don't have to ask any more questions. We know if somebody shortchanges you, you're going to get angry. You know if somebody doesn't pay you on time, you're going to want to kill them. We know if, uh, if there's no deal to be made, you don't want to be friends with anybody. Money runs your world. Miskin. On the other hand, if you think of money as a tool, like a hammer, a hammer is a tool, money is a tool, you need a hammer sometimes, you need money sometimes, then we'll ask you more questions to see what's going on. Then, why? Because you could potentially be a tzaddik. You could potentially be a tzaddik if you treat money the right way. You treat money like it's a tool and not like it's everything. You could potentially qualify to be a tzaddik based on the rest of the answers. But if you fail the first question, if money is everything to you, no more questions, Your Honor. No more questions. Why? You're worshipping money. So the first thing is koso, the, the money. Second thing is koso. Koso means his cup. How often does he get drunk, if ever? The Gemara says there's a few people that Hashem loves. One of them is a person who never gets angry. Another one is a person who never gets drunk. Now, it's a lot to get drunk under certain conditions and under certain times. But just to get drunk on a regular basis, just because you know we're, everybody's drinking uh, lechaim, and you take the opportunity to become one of these people that falls over themselves, it's too much. Just because we're drinking Kiddush wine every Friday doesn't give you a uh, door opener to drink a whole bottle of Arak. We're doing Kiddush, have a sip, have a okay, no problem. There's nothing wrong with you drinking a little wine. But to uh, get to a point where you can't wake up for prayer the next day because you're drunk and you have a hangover, you have a problem. Next thing is Kaso. Kaso is a person that gets angry. Why angry? Because everyone gets angry. This is something that everyone suffers from. Anger is a poison that all of us have some of it. The question is, 
How much of it do you have in your system? Is it under control? Or do you lose control? Everyone has it. Question is, how much of it is running your life? Why? Because the Gemara in Masichet Shabbat, I believe it's page 108, B, says that a person that gets angry and loses control is no different than a person that worships idols. It's considered as if he just worshipped an idol. So how, what do they classify as someone that lost control? Someone that, let's say, for example, took money and just threw it in the air. Maybe they were talking about me in my old days in poker. I would get upset. I'd just throw the chips on the table. Ah, okay, fine, fine. They're talking about me in about 2,000 years ago, maybe. Get angry, do stupid things. Or maybe somebody takes a remote control and throws it across the room. You know, he watches sports or something. These people watch sports. Their team wins or loses or something happens. Somebody breaks their leg or misses a basket or something happens. And they get so upset, they take the remote and they throw it on the TV. What did TV do to you? Just wasted $2,000. For what? So now, not only your team lost, now you also lost yourself $2,000 for a TV. I mean, technically you should have thrown it on the garbage anyway without the sport. If you actually would listen to Allah, you wouldn't have TV. If you didn't have TV, you wouldn't get angry. If you didn't get angry, you wouldn't worship an idol. That's a lot. But if you already have a TV, why are you going to break it? At least throw it in the garbage. Do it properly. The point is, is that a person that takes the remote and throws it on the TV because his stock went up, his stock went down, his stock split, the CEO, all the stuff. Rabotai, the Gemara says this person just worshipped an idol. Why? Why is it considered idolatry? I mean, it's a little bit mugzam. It's a little bit extreme. Why? It says that this person is allowing the Yetzirah to run his life. If he got to a point where he actually got so angry that he took something and threw it, that means that he listened to everything the Yetzirah said to him. Because that's exactly what the Yetzirah wanted to do. So he says, the Gemara says, today he throws the remote. Today he throws the money. Today he throws the rock. Whatever he did. Tomorrow the Yetzirah is going to tell him to make a left. The next day he's going to tell him to make a right. The next day he's going to tell him to go straight. And little before you know it, oh, he's going to tell him, is the idol over here, come, let's pray to him together. Meaning, if you're already going to listen to everything the Yetzirah is going to tell you, you're only one corner away from Christianity. You're only one corner away from having a Buddha statue in your house thinking you're a tzaddik. I had a friend, Israeli guy. He swore, he's like, listen, I'm not religious, but I'm a really good person. I'm a really good person. I said, oh, listen, I'm not, the, I'm not the definer of good. So he invited me to his house one time. And I don't usually go to people's houses, but, you know, I was in the neighborhood, I came to his house. And, meaning I don't sleep there. I had to sleep there because it was a holiday and there was no room in, the, in my parents' house, so we stayed over there. It was a really nice guy. I said, okay, I'm going to go to this guy's house. Not eating there. It was Yom Kippur. I just needed to be close to the shul. So I went there. As soon as I come in, I pass. Nice house. Baruch Hashem, everything is clean. He's very generous. He's very welcoming. Baruch Hashem, very nice. Okay, let's Baruch Hashem. And I pass by. I walk, I walk, I walk. And I see this. Like, it's an office. And I see in the corner of my eye, it's like a desk. And on the desk is a Buddha statue. 
where did I come? What did I do? What am I doing here? It's Avodah Zarah inside the house. Now, he's serious. When he says he's a really nice guy, he's serious. And I agree with him, he's a really nice guy. But according to Hashem, he's not a nice guy. According to Hashem, he has Avodah Zarah inside his house. Now, the problem is that a person that has Avodah Zarah in their house usually doesn't realize it. And that's why in the book of Isaiah, when it talks about Reshaim doing tshuva, it doesn't say when the people stop making sins. It says when the people stop going in the direction that they're going. Why stop going in the direction that they're going? He says because sometimes a person sins so often that he becomes used to it, it becomes part of his direction. He doesn't realize it's a sin. He doesn't realize it's a sin, Bichlal. Most people don't think that being angry is a sin. But according to the Torah, it's a very big one. So, just to get started, we already see we have a lot of work to do here. And the reason why is because, as Rabbi Yisraeli Salat used to say, if you look at the sky and you see a star, it looks small. If you look at the sky and you see a star, as an adult or someone that's familiar with stars in the universe, you know that the star is bigger than it appears. But if you ask your son or daughter, it's little and cute, you ask them, how big is the star? And they tell you, oh, it's this big, Abba. It's this big. Why? Because in their eyes, they see something that's this big. In their eyes, if they have these little cartoon books, or they see any of these cartoons or something like that, and they see the stars, and they see cartoons with stars, and they see the stars flying together with, I don't know, some bird, and their friends together, and the star is a character, and they think the star is the same size as the bird, the star is the same size as the dog. It's, it's this big, Abba. It's this big, Ima. Now you yourself, you know, the star could be bigger than Earth. The star could potentially be bigger than the sun. But how come your son or daughter that's smart normally is making such a big mistake saying that the star is only this big? Why? The Holy Israel, Rabbi Israel Misalan says because your son or daughter are far from the truth. They're far from the truth of knowledge to know how big the star really is. He says the same thing is with us. Why do we continue making sins? Why do we continue getting angry? Why are we continuously arrogant and cheap and all of the bad character traits without ever really thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, I really need to do tshuva. Ah, you know what? I'll do tshuva on Yom Kippur. Ah, you know what? I'll do tshuva when I get married. Ah, you know, I'll do tshuva next week. Ah, you know, I don't really need to do tshuva. It's not that bad after all. It's only a wig. It's not that bad after all. It's only Shabbat. It's not that bad after all. It's just this. It's just this. Why is it always that the things we need to do tshuva on, it's not that bad? Why? The reason, Rabotai, is because we're very, very far away from the truth, the Holy Israel says. You're so far from the truth, you don't realize how big your sins really are. You think that it's just this, or it's just that, or it's just this, or it's just that. It's not such a big deal. That by itself requires a separate tshuva. 
understand the magnitude of your sin is the first level of tshuva. Why? Because there's no chance for you to do tshuva without understanding the magnitude of your sin. So in these couple of shiurim, we're going to talk about anger. We're not necessarily going to talk about just the pitaron, the solution, because the solution is a lifetime. It's a lifetime of learning. It's a lifetime of, of, of understanding and working and toiling. What we're going to work on, Bezat Hashem, is understand the magnitude of the sin. Because that alone is going to make the sin a little less sweet. A little less worthwhile. A little more expensive. The Gemara Maseret Nedarim, page 22a, says a person who gets angry, all forms of Geinom rule over him. And the reason why is because when a person gets angry, he can no longer control his emotions. When a person is not able to control his emotions, he's no different than a drunk. He's no different than a shoteh. Everything he does is going to be a mistake. And anything he does right, it's accidental. One of the giants from Novadok, Rabbi Tzak Wallstein, says that a person, he reminds in his, in his teachings, something that's also written in the Gemara as well, is that a person that learns Torah has to be even more careful with anger. Even though the Gemara in Masechet Chagigah says that if you see someone who learns Torah get angry, don't be so surprised. If he's new, it's because the Torah is fire. Torah is fire. It makes the person fiery. If he's learning real Torah, it makes the person fiery. So if he's still new, he doesn't know how to control the fire yet. He's like a superhero, Lavdil. Superhero just got his power. He doesn't know how to control it yet. He doesn't know how to control it yet. He doesn't know how much power he really has with this Torah. So Gemara says, if you see somebody learns Torah... And he's fiery. Don't get so, uh, okay, relaxed, okay, let him go. Let, be a little bit more lenient with him. Why? Because over time he's going to know how to, he has the solution. He has a problem, but he has a solution too. But a person that learns Torah has to be careful after he's learning for a while. Why? Because if he gets angry, he can lose all of his chokhmah in a second. And we don't just mean just for that minute that he's angry. Permanently. There are several people well-known people that have lost their chokhmah. One of them I know personally. One person I know was, is, still is, a very big rabbi, big Talmud Chacham. Wrote books, reached high level. Some even say he could be the Gdol Adol at one point. He was on the way to becoming one of the Gdol Adol. I don't know the details of all the stories. All I know is that one day, Something happened medically. He woke up, forgot everything. Forgot everything. Forgot even how to read Rashi. Forgot he had to learn Aleph Bet all from the start, all over again. Baruch Hashem, he still had his good midot because that's the one thing you don't lose. Good midot, you don't lose. Yet good midot, yet patience. 
and he attained it, Baruch Hashem, again. I don't know if he got to the same level as he did before, I, I don't think so. But nonetheless, did something that most of us couldn't attain once in our life. Twice. So losing your wisdom is not something that just happens in stories. It happens in real life. And he's young, he's maybe mid-50s. But Rav Walshin says that this is not just a fact of Torah in regards to a person losing his wisdom. This is also a fact of life. Because a person that gets angry, every bit of anger can cause this person to lose his perspective totally and forfeit control over his emotional world. Because the words that you speak, the words that are uttered during a time of anger are ones that typically destroy relationships. So even if you reconcile after, even if you make up, even if you say, I'm sorry, honey, I'm sorry, baby, I love you, eh, she's always going to remember you said something about her that's not nice. 20 years later, she's going to remember that you said such things. 30 years later, he's going to remember you cursed out his mother. It's never going to go away. Because when a person becomes spiteful and does things out of anger, Gainom takes over. All of the Shadim from Gainom, they come up. We have a place today. We have a place today. Yeah, we're going to park over here in his head. We're going to park in our head over here. Yeah, yeah, this is a good place for us. It's just as hot. It's hot in Gainom, it's hot in our head. Let's go. Who's the victim? Oh, the kid, come, come, slap him over here. He's late to school. Oh, the daughter, Tah, give her a slap. Also, she's not wearing something that's uh, that. Him, yell at him. Why? I don't know, just make it a hat trick. Yell at the clerk, yell at this one. You see people, sometimes they go to a supermarket or to a store, they start yelling at the employees like they work for them. Ah, you don't know how to count. You made a mistake. It's 32 cents, not 33. Okay, ma'am, I'm sorry, 33. Okay, I'll give you, here's the money. Here's the money. You don't have to yell at the guy embarrassing him in public, me skin. You made a mistake on my change. Okay, I made a mistake on your change. I'm sorry. Oh, you didn't count to this. You didn't count. Okay, relax. I'm sorry. Okay, you made a mistake. Well, you don't make mistakes in your job. You don't make mistakes in your job. You're the only person in the world doesn't make mistakes in their job. So you made a mistake. Customer is always right. No, they're not. Anyone that owns a business owes, owns a business knows the customer is not always right. It's a complete lie. As a matter of fact, more times than not, the customer is wrong. It's a stupid motto they invented in America to make everyone into a customer and feel good about it. It's completely stupid and wrong. Customer is not always right. But people believe this nonsense. And they start treating everyone like they're slaves. Well, I'm not going to do business anymore. Don't. Go somewhere else. What? You're going to lose my business? Okay. Lost. As a matter of fact, I don't want your business. Go away. Go away. People think that because they're your customer or because they're this or because they donate or because they 
come. They think that they can run the show. It's complete nonsense. Who told you you can do this? At one time I did a shiur about a topic that some people don't like to hear about. And some woman didn't like it. So she started publicizing on the internet, this is wrong, and bad-mouthing me. The public, Baruch Hashem. So it's good, it's good, it's good. People publicly embarrass me online, it's very good for me. It's good. Uh, please, anyone online, you want to give me some more of your mitzvot? Go. More power to you. Chazaku Baruch. Gives me your mitzvot. But anyway... Uh, no, Bimet, that's what happens. A person that publicly embarrasses you, you don't do anything about it. All of the mitzvot they made in their entire life just go into your account. Is that true if they speak about halal or Publicly embarrassed. Whatever they're doing, doesn't make a difference. All of it is lashon chilut. All of the things they go in the same account. Anyway, let's not harp on the topic. The point is, is that it's not fun to hear. I'm just saying it just to make light of the topic. Uh, the... Uh, the point is that I said something that some people don't like to talk about. I think it had to do with modesty or whatever it was. And uh, she started saying some things on the internet that weren't very nice, not compliments, Baruch Hashem. And then on top of it, she decided to start contacting me to remove this shiur. Like, I'm going to remove a whole shiur because she didn't like this three words that were in it or something like that. Now, typically, if you want to get my attention, the last thing you should do is insult me. If you insult me, usually you go on the delete list. I'm looking. There's a lot of place for people that want to go on a delete list. I already have, I'm already working overtime. So you want to go on a delete list? Just embarrass me, insult me, do something. Oh, Hashem, I can add you to the list. Room. Anyway, so she thinks I'm going to respond to her. Then she contacts some of the people that help us, employees, uh, volunteers, and so on. Oh, he's not answering me. He's not answering me. You know, I donated one time. Uh, what kind of customer service is this? I donated. The... I'm like, who is this person? I'm thinking, wow, is this like one of the people that donates a lot of money? I don't know. Who... I'm thinking, nobody donates a lot of money. Oh, okay. So there's a few people. So I'm like, who's this person? Where'd she do? I never heard it. I mean, usually I know my donors. I know who the donors are, especially somebody that say, I'm a donor. I know the donors. I'm like, I don't remember her name. I don't remember her name. And then I see maybe like three years before that, she donated like $18. She's making it like she just, she just like launched the books, the CDs, the website, this lecture. She sponsored this lecture too. Like, the customer is always right. Went to people's head. People go crazy. I'm not saying you have to be a big donor for me to, to answer your question. Everybody that asks me questions knows that's not a requirement at all. Most people that answer questions don't donate at all. I don't care. It doesn't make a difference to me. Your donation is not going to make me more inclined or less inclined to answer your questions. But don't think that I will answer them because you donated. Because if I start making that distinguishing aspect, if I make your money a reason for me to answer or not answer you, then officially this has become a business. It's not Torah anymore. So the reality is that 
people take these things to their head sometimes. Because they think that if they heard it on TV or they heard it on the internet, it must be true. The customer is always right. The customer is not always right. But a person that gets angry loses their mind and can destroy a relationship very easily. I understand that not everything that I say is politically correct. I'm very proud of that, Baruch Hashem, because that means that we're still staying honest. And I know that maybe some people are not going to like it. But Baruch Hashem, I'm also, also proud of that because that means it's not my opinion. Because if it was up to me, I would try to please everyone. Why would anybody want to say things to upset people? Does anyone ever think about that? Like, why would you want to do something that you know for sure is going to upset people? There has to be a different. There has to be a different. A different a uh, reason for it. I'm talking about a mentally sane person. Now, of course, there are some people that are insane or mentally unstable that get off of the fact that they upset people. I'm not talking about that. Baruch Hashem, I think I'm all there. I'm talking about people that are normal, that want to get the message to as many people as possible. By default, you would want everyone to agree with you. If Moshe Rabbeinu was a politician, you would have come down with a Torah that's half empty. Why? Because the reality is half the laws make people upset. The first one were his own parents. His own parents. He had to tell me, Abba, Ima, I know you've been my parents for 86 years, and uh, I love you guys. I know you helped me out and everything, but I gotta, you guys got to get divorced. Why? You're his aunt. According to the Torah, Jesus came from Mount Sinai. I just got from Hashem. You guys heard me. You guys heard Hashem. Hashem says we're not allowed to marry our aunts. So Abba Ima, you have to give her a get. You have to fulfill a mitzvah of giving Ima a get. You have to get divorced, Ima and Abba. He has to tell, he, has, he came down from Mount Sinai and he had to tell his own parents. Imagine telling your own parents, Abba Ima, you have to get divorced. According to the Torah. If he was a politician, the first thing he would do is wipe this one out. White out, invented 3,300 years ago. But he didn't. He didn't. Or he would go to Amisai and says, Listen, Rabotai, I know you guys all prepared for the Matan Torah and everything is good. Everybody already did the Shech. Everybody already slaughtered all the cows. A million cows were slaughtered. You know how many cows were slaughtered? We're talking about millions and millions of dollars. Why? The Matan Torah. Big event. They heard God. They heard everything. Everything is good. Rabbi Mizrahi said one time that he did the math. He did the math of how many cows. How many cows had to get uh, slaughtered? He said he did the math. It was maybe like $130 million. All had to go to waste. Why? They all slaughtered it. They all slaughtered it. When? Before they got to Torah. Before they got to Torah. So, what does it mean? It's not kosher. Yeah, but we just lost $150 million. Sorry. We slaughtered your cows too, Moshe. Sorry, what can I do? I'm losing money too. So, if Moshe was a politician, he would change the Torah. Many things. First off, the knife itself has to be very, very sharp to the point where there's no necks. There's no, there's no bumps in, a, in the knife at all. Just to prepare the knife itself takes days and days of preparation. 
Second thing is that you have to make sure that there's certain uh, uh, um, parts of the neck that are slaughtered right away to make sure that the animal does not live uh, for, uh, you know, and doesn't suffer. And many, many other parts, laws of the Shechita, they, they obviously didn't follow because they didn't know. They didn't have the Torah yet. So the point is that if you do it like the Arabs, the Arabs also slaughter their cows. Arabs also slaughter their cows, but if you see their slaughters versus a Jewish slaughter, that's a kosher slaughter, it's miles away difference. They slaughter their cows in a very vicious way, and a kosher cow is not slaughtered in a vicious way. It's not, uh, it's not uh, uh, a uh, kindergarten. The cow is not dancing and, and looking forward to getting slaughtered or anything. Like some people think that slaughter is supposed to be like a fun thing for the cow. Oh, look, it moved. Of course it's going to move. You just killed it. Oh, look, it's, it's, it's moving its leg. Yeah, it has nerves like you do. If I cut you, your leg's going to move too. Oh, look, it's not happy. Yeah, well, let me try it on you. See if you're happy. Of course, it's not a fun thing. Let's not try to beautify the slaughter into, uh, you know, like it's a happy event, like we just went to the playground and playing. We're not playing. It's like you're killing something. But that's its purpose. By the same token, there's a way to do things, a way not to do things. So if Moshe Rabbeinu was a politician, then he would erase this. Why? Why would you want the first law that everyone's going to learn to cost them $150 million. Everyone hates you. Average family just lost ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 because they just heard the story you gave them. Who's going to like you now? So, it's important to know that if you're making people upset unintentionally, simply by telling the truth, that means you're going in the right direction. But if all you're trying to do is to make people happy, you're better off not teaching. Because at some point or another, you're going to have to create a new truth, which, a.k.a. lie. Because the Torah is not going to always make you happy in the beginning until you've identified that it's the truth and that everything that's in it is truth. It's not always going to make you happy. So, if you're going to be one of these people that gets angry quickly... You should know. It's important for you to control yourself because the words that are going to come out of your mouth during a moment of anger are more risky than any other words that will ever come out of your mouth. Those are the type of words that can become spiteful. Those are the type of words that can become very, very hurtful. Those are the type of words that could actually destroy a relationship. And even if the relationship is fixed, it's never forgotten. It's never forgotten. Yes, you can say, listen, I love you, I love you, I love you, but she's always going to remember that you called her a, a name that made fun of her. He's always going to remember that you made fun of him. They're always going to remember it. It's never going to pass. So this is something I learned already when I was maybe like 17, 18 years old. A friend of mine taught me this, and she said, rule number one, empathy. Learn how to put yourself in other people's shoes. You would think this woman just came from Mount Sinai. Why? Because this is what we learned from the Torah. Empathy. Put yourself in the other people's shoes. Hillel Azaken, Hillel Azaken said, don't do to your friend what you hate. Not just don't do things, don't do to others what you don't. No, just don't do what you hate. 
There's another ma'amal. There's another saying, do unto others, don't do unto others what you don't do unto yourself. But he said, no, no, even less than that. Just don't focus on the things that you like, don't like. No, just the things you hate, don't do it to other people. If you just stop doing that, already that's half your problem's gone. So, when we're angry, that trigger doesn't work. That trigger, that, that sensor that controls us, before we, before we say things that are awful, or do things that are awful, is off. That's the important thing to know when it comes to Gainom, in this world, this is how you can create it for yourself. By not letting that sensor work. If you're angry, the first thing you should do is be quiet. Yeah, but then it means I'm keeping all to myself. Yes, good. You're going to contain the damage. No, but then we could talk it out. No, no, you don't need to talk it out right now. Talk it out in an hour from now, when you're calm. After you ate ice cream. After you took a cold shower. After, uh, after you walked for six miles and you have zero energy left. After the dust has settled, if you're angry, don't talk. Nothing good's going to come out of it. But if you want a good marriage, don't go to sleep either. Don't go to sleep either. Never ever go to sleep angry at each other. You have to solve the problem before you go to sleep. If that means you're not going to go to sleep till 4 o'clock in the morning, so be it. Learn how not to be angry. That will teach you, oh, it's not worth it. Now listen, if I get into an argument with her right now, then this is going to continue. She's right. I'm wrong. I'm right. She's wrong. I'm make a difference. The point is, at four o'clock in the morning, is when we're going to solve this problem. Finally, I got work tomorrow. What do you do? Ah, it's just not worth. It. Okay, you're right, honey. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Nine out of ten times, you could solve all the problems before they start, just by identifying the cost. So, a person who's angered easily and pacified easily. His gain is offset by his loss. Rabbeinu Yonah says that one who becomes angry over trivial matters, simple things, nonsense, is bound to be provoked often. Meaning if little things make you angry, like me, then every two minutes you're going to be angry. There's always going to be something that annoys you. This is one of the most difficult things for me to work on for myself. Because I usually would never get mad at uh, big things. Didn't make a difference what would happen. The market can crash. The customers can uh, leave. The uh, employees can steal from me. All those things generally wouldn't make me upset. What would make me upset? Somebody walked in five minutes late. The sandwich by the time it arrived at my desk is not hot. I can't find a pen. Someone was late paying a bill. I, you know, I had bills. I would always want to pay on time. Ah, oh, somebody forgot to pay the bill, and I'm late by a day, and they charge me fifteen bucks extra. Stupid things. The guy's making millions of dollars. I'm, I'm upset about fifteen dollars. Nonsense. Those are the things that would make me upset. Big things. They make a difference. I went to. I went to war with the government. Never made me upset. Didn't make me upset. None of that. That's the thing. That's that's a bigger poison. Why? Because the small things is much harder to work on. Big things don't always happen. You don't always have big problems. Usually there's a lot of small problems. So that's the thing. So a person needs to know that if he gets angry over nonsense, 
then he's going to have a very, very tough tikkun. Very tough tikkun. Why? Because every two minutes there's going to be something happening. Every two minutes you're going to find out there's a bill that's late, that there's a flat tire, that there's someone that's late, that uh, someone that's looking at you the wrong way and you don't realize whether they're looking at you or the person behind you. Or someone said something or not said something or there's an interruption. There's always something little happening all the time. One of the ways that I try and still try to do to deal with it is by making fun of it. If you can't make fun of yourself, then who are you going to make fun of? You have to make fun of it. That's how I make light of the issue. It doesn't always work, but it works more time than that, Baruch Hashem. Make fun of nonsense. Why? It's either make, get angry or go make fun. Make fun of yourself, it's better. Why? At least you're going to get a laugh out of it. So even, so this person that gets angry easily, even if he's pacified easily, there's another outburst that's about to happen anyway. Even though this person, okay, you got him angry, but he's, he's easily calms down. He realizes he has to go back to work, he has to do this. The reality is, you can't depend on that. Why? Because something little annoying thing is going to happen anyway in two minutes. Meaning he's like a grenade. At any minute he's going to go off. He's a very difficult person to be next to. Poor people that were next to me. My wife always tells me that I make myself seem to be much worse than I really was. I don't know, maybe she's being nice. Yes? If a person never gets angry at all... Not possible. No, it just means he's dead. Oh, that means he has to go to a mental institution. If he gets angry at absolutely nothing, that means he's mentally unstable. Then he got angry at something. That's different. Disappointment or things like that. That's something. But if he just wakes up angry for absolutely no reason, goes to sleep angry for no reason, during the day he's angry for no reason, then he's mentally unstable. Then he's not going to be at the shiur. But if he attended the shiur, then he's usually somewhat stable and could potentially fix himself. He just needs to work on it. So the positive aspect of his character trait that he gets pacified easily is offset by his general vulnerability to even minor frustrations. So a moment of anger may cause damage that cannot be easily erased by, by the appeasement. Meaning even though he gets fixed right away, calms down right away, the amount of damage that he can cause at the moment of anger, can carry a lot of weight. So, for the purpose of my own tshuva, I could tell you some personal stories that are embarrassing. Give you guys some uh, topics to talk about in, uh, during your Shulchan Shabbat. So, I remember, one of the things that I've never been good at is chit-chat. I've never been good at chit-chatting. I've never been good at, at wasting time. I don't like wasting time. I don't like talking about nothing. Everything has to have a purpose. That's my, my brain doesn't work if there's no purpose. So, I always expected my employees to be the same thing. Little did I know that it's just not. People don't necessarily always think the same way you do. 
So it would drive me crazy when I would see people come to my office, my employees coming to my office, and they're just wasting time. They're just, not all that, they're just joking around, playing on a computer, doing nothing. Now, it's not that they're doing it all day, but moments during the day. For me, if I'm already at the office, I'm going to work. So the minute I come in to the minute I leave, I'm working, I'm doing something. It may not always look like it's work because I'm something because I'm on a computer or I'm doing research, but I'm always doing something. But sometimes people can't just work that way. Some people need to like take mental breaks and just allow junk to enter their mind. So they do work, they do work, they do work. Whatever their work is, they make phone calls, uh, they look, you know, they do research, whatever it is that they do. But then they have to take breaks and they just start joking around. They play a game or they start telling jokes to each other or whatever it is that they do. They do nonsense. They look at sports. So people need to add like junk to their brain in order to take a break from life, from the tension of life. To me, this was completely intolerable. I hated it. I hated seeing my employees joke around. It would drive me insane. But generally, I, would just, I was too busy. But once in a while, it would really lose my mind. And, you know, I'd yell at them, come on, what are you, what are you here? Go home then. If you're, not, if you're going to just joke around in the office, go home. What are you going to, for what? But a few times my anger got the best of me, where I told them a few times to stop joking around, and they still joked around anyway. So I think one time they had a, um, uh, they were watching some videos, and they were both, like, they were, the three of them, were like hysterical laughing at whatever they were watching for like two hours. It was like two minutes. It was it was, literally it was a while. It was just joking. That's the, the watch. You imagine you're sitting here in the office and you keep hearing <laughs> people are just laughing hysterically like it's a Comedy Central here in your office. So after a while, it's annoying. So you're looking, guys, stop. And then you get five minutes. <laughs> Come on, stop. No, we'll get back to off. So after I think like the third time or something like that, I just decide just okay. I went. I took the desk. I took the computer and smashed it, and I left. Now, I paid for the computer. It's my computer. Nobody's, I'm not taking anybody's money. But to me, this was the only solution at my moment of anger. This is not the right way to, to, to address people. This is not the right way. I'm not teaching you how to act. I'm telling you how not to act. Because I remember when I had actually one of those, actually two out of those uh, people, uh, had a uh, big difference between them. Like we had an issue later on, years later, that... Uh, they stole from me, and then I, uh, we went into a lawsuit and so on. The point is, one of them, one of the people, was like my first employee, meaning he was with me for a long time. He was with me for over a decade. I gave him a bunch of money. I helped him a lot, a lot of different things and so on. But during the lawsuit, during the lawsuit, when he was, there was question, you know, they make everybody, they make you look like a criminal. Lawyers, that, that's their job. Their job is to make you look like a criminal. If they're fighting you, it doesn't make a difference. You could be uh, the biggest rabbi in the world. You could be a tzaddik, uh, you know, could be Moshe Rabbeinu. Their number one job is to take you and make you into a criminal. So, and their party into the biggest victim in the world. This one was uh, raped and tortured in the Holocaust, and this one was Hitler himself. And both sides do the same thing in essence. So I remember during this lawsuit, it was baffling to me that we were even in this thing. So the one thing, like we were together, we, this kid worked for me for a long time, for over 10 years. I helped him personally. 
financially, in every way possible. The one thing, the one thing that he didn't stop mentioning was that one time that I took the computer and broke it. But that cost me. Why? Because to the, the, the judge or the arbitration panel, this was so unheard of that somebody would take a computer, regardless of the fact that it's my computer, I paid for it. It's my computer. It's not, I'm not taking it from his house and, uh, and, and plugging it out of the wall. It's my computer. The point is it doesn't make a difference. In their mind, the arbitrations panel, I just turned into Hitler's brother. How do you take a computer and break it? What's the matter with you? Ah, ah. Like all of a sudden, I saw it. I saw it. As, soon as, I, as soon as this was said, that's it. It didn't make a difference. The fact that I proved that they stole from me was irrelevant. The fact that I proved that they broke the law, irrelevant. Everything in our case became worth zero. Why? Because they just took and took the human and turned him into a monster. So here we see that this, in reality can cost you millions. And it did. It wasn't just a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars computer, stupid computer. It can cost you millions. It can cost you your life. It can cost you eternity. It has a very heavy price. And hopefully the embarrassment that I'm getting from telling you guys this story helps my tshuva too. But the point is, Rabotai, is we see that there's external, external factors that are the results of the anger that can cause not only the spiritual damage, but also damage that's monetary, damage that has to do with relationships, damage that has to do with everything else. It's not just talking about the damage between the relationship that you have between you and Hashem. That's already horrible. No, it's damage in real life. Your relationships that you have, the friendships that you have, and so on and so forth. But once a person is able to work on himself and start controlling his anger, then he can reduce the negative impact on his soul. Rav Matityahu Aitzari says that people typically react to an adversary's anger with frustration which in turn increases the agitated person's distress. Meaning, a person that gets angry typically will get angry everywhere. There's no, there's no lines. They don't have any lines. They don't have any control. So they'll get angry at the clerk in the coffee uh, shop or the supermarket or uh, the electronics store or the waiter or their kid or their husband. All the same. They're going to treat everyone as if they're working for them, as if they're all slaves. So now, what happens is, the person that receives this anger, the person that gets this mistreatment, typically, how do they react? They have two ways to act. One is, go at them. Don't talk to me this way. Who are you to talk to me this way? You're going to throw something at me, I'm going to throw something at you. But you, 9 out of 10 people are normal, they're not going to do that. So what are they going to do? They're not going to say, okay, okay, I'm sorry, sir. They're not going to do that. What are they going to do? They're going to get frustrated. And they're going to act out on their frustration. All of a sudden, they don't feel like doing the math for your groceries. All of a sudden, they don't want to give you customer service. All of a sudden, they don't want to smile at you and say, thank you, sir, for coming. Because they're not grateful that you came. They hope that you never existed, let alone come to their story. 
So the point is that there, the typical, the typical reaction to your anger is the other person being frustrated, which in turn makes the person that's angry angrier. He's complaining about the person not doing math right. But now, not only they're not doing math right, now they're not giving you customer service. Now they're looking at you funny. Now they're making a face at you. Now they're giving you an attitude. This makes you angrier. You see how this trial, how the Yitzhak takes you from Avira to Avira. It takes you from one cent to the other. It's like clockwork. The spirit, the, the, the spiraling effect can turn a mere difference of opinion into a serious conflict. This is how a person can go from go, being in a, in, a, in a, let's say, traffic. Like there was somebody that was in traffic just a few months ago. Somebody cut him off. Cut him off. He chased him down. The other guy wasn't hiding. He stopped. He stopped. Stopped him. He cut you off. Big deal. He cut you off. Okay, so now you're not the first one on the highway. You're number two. Big deal. Like, what are you in a race? Are you getting paid from Formula One to get there on time? Like, okay, so he cuts you off. Are you alive? Is everything okay? Move on with your life. No. What do you mean? I got to teach him. What are you, his teacher? I got to teach him how to drive. How are you going to teach him how to drive? By stabbing him. Another guy, another couple of guys, Jewish guys. Got into a difference because of traffic issues. I think he took us a parking spot. One guy took a parking spot of the other guy. The other guy came out. They started fighting. He killed him. In front of his house, he killed him. Young kid, maybe 20 years old, 25 years old. He killed him in front of his house. For what? For what? For stupid, for parking spot. Which word didn't you understand? I'll explain it. Yes. On the street. Because you live in Florida that has garages and parking spaces. The rest of the world doesn't always have that. There's, oh, the rest of the world has like streets and pe- people park in the streets. There's parking spaces in the streets. Did you ever go to New York? Yeah. So in New York, there's this place called Brooklyn. <laughs> or Manhattan. Yeah. And over there, they don't have usually garages. People park on the street. And somebody, and sometimes it's hard to find parking. And people get upset because they're hotheads and they don't have Torah. So they uh, get angry. They get mad. Point being, this story happened. I didn't make it up. And uh, the guy died. Young Jewish kid. What difference does it make if he was killed by a chimpanzee? He died. Irrelevant. He died. And the, the, the community is not mourning of whether it was Jew or non-Jew. The community is mourning that the kid died for a stupid reason. Let's move on. A person's friends and family are aware. Once, once a person is dealing with his own family, with his own friends. And they know that this guy's a hothead. So they're aware of it. 
They're aware of his temperament. So they know how to deal with it. They know how to deal with it. He's a cuckoo. So we deal with him. We know how to deal with him. Anytime he gets angry, we just ignore him. We let him, we let him, you know, blow out some steam. We let him, you know, break a remote or two. We let him go outside and uh, come back in three hours without calling him because we know that if we call him, he's going to lose his mind. They know how to deal with him. The problem is that not everybody is his family. The guy thinks that he can treat everybody like he treats his family that are all victims, miskinim. Sometimes the guy doesn't leave the house much. So when he's angry, his mom, his dad, his sister, his brother, his wife, his son, all the people, they know how to deal with him. Why they know this guy is an angry gremlin. He's always angry. But they know how to deal with it. They know as soon as this guy's angry, everybody, run! You go to your room, 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 you hide under the table, you hide in the garage, you go to work. I don't have any work. Pretend you have it. Everybody run. Stay out of his way. Everybody knows how to deal with it. So this guy, after a while, the angry gremlin, thinks that the rest of the world is going to also comply with his anger. So the moment somebody cuts him off in the highway, or somebody steals his parking spot, that he thinks it belongs to him, as if anything is his, or looks at him the wrong way, or says the wrong thing, whatever it is, he thinks they're also going to run when he gets angry. He says, ah! So when the other party, instead of running away, takes his hand and smashes it in his face, he's very surprised. Wait, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to run away like my daughter and my son. And my... No, 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 buddy. You're angry, I'm angrier. And he can easily put his life in danger. And a lot of these things that happen when people die during uh, road rage, it's because a person thinks for a moment that everyone knows that he's Mr. Angry and everyone is going to comply in accordance to his tune. The world is not going to dance to your tune. One day, a bigger, angrier person is going to act that has a gun or a knife or a fist or whatever else. And then... You're not going to have time to regret. Why? You'll be dead. Now, what kind of embarrassment do you think you're going to have when you go up to Shammai and say, oh yeah, you murdered yourself. Why? You should have controlled your temper. Funny, but not. So, a person needs to know that his anger is not, a, it's not something that everyone has to suffer from. The fact that you're angry is not my problem. Go smash your head against the wall a few times, release some, some steam, and then come back when you're not angry. My father always has said, anybody that's angry, give him a cup of cold water. Why? Nothing else you could do for him. Just give him some cold water and go away. Give him some cold water, relax. Calm down. Take it easy. So now, if we look in the Torah, we always like to look in the Torah to see some sources of some things, everything that we say. If we look in the book of Leviticus, Sefer Vayikra, in chapter 24, verse 17 to 19, 
we get a law that seems odd. We get a law that seems odd. Now, after the story of the son of Shlomit, the Israelite woman that was, uh, her name was Shlomit, that was raped by the Egyptian, her son became forever known as the blasphemer that cursed the name of Hashem. After this story, Hashem explains to us the law of capital punishment that a person that speaks these types of words to Hashem has to get a death penalty. But there's also other people that get the death penalty. So he says... One who pronounced blasphemy the name of Hashem shall be put to death. The entire assembly shall surely stone him, proselyte, native alike, meaning everyone is part of this. Doesn't make a difference. There's no exceptions. When he blasphemes the name, blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. And then it continues. And a man, if he strikes mortally any human life, he shall be put to death. And a man who strikes mortally an animal life, kills a bull or a cat or a dog or whatever it is, shall make restitution. Life for a life. So here we see there's a difference between the two. Verse 17 and 18 says, If you kill a human being, you must be killed. Anyone that's a terrorist, people are celebrating that the Israeli army killed like 70 terrorists in the last week or so. This shouldn't be celebrated. This should have already been happening for the last 70 years. Anyone that kills must be killed. The fact that there's a whole huge prison system in Israel full of terrorists is ridiculous. Why? All of them need to be killed. As soon as you kill somebody, it's a death penalty. That's it. There's no trial. There's no uh, 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 maybe this. What do they do? Not only do they not kill these people, they give money to their families. It's the most ridiculous, absurd thing in the world. Yes, and? You sh- no, the fact that there's no Sanhedrin is the reason why we don't do it. But the fact is that we don't act because of that. We have to act based on the Torah. According to the Torah, we should kill them. Even without the Sanhedrin. They killed us, we have to kill them. The next point is, is that any other government would act accordingly. If somebody killed somebody in America, they would kill him. If the fact that they give, they put him in jail in Israel is, is completely demented and against the law in any other country. But anyway, let's focus on this law here. The law is that if a person kills another person, they all, there's only one penalty. What is it? Death penalty. There's no 20 years in prison. There's no 50 years in prison. There's no 100 years in prison like they're giving this kid that just murdered a bunch of people last week. They're giving him 50 years in prison because he's only 17. Or 40 years in prison. And when he's 57, he's going to be able to go on parole. He's 57 years old, he's going to be able to go free. Potentially. If nobody kills him in there before that. 
But the point is that this is the ludicrous situation. According to the Torah, you kill, you have to be killed. You have no you have lost your right to live. But the Torah specifies if you kill an animal, it's obviously not the same value, no matter what the organization PETA and the like and the lefty liberals think. The value of an animal is not like the value of a human being. If you kill a dog, however cute he is, it's not worth your life. If you kill a cat, it's not worth your life. You kill a monkey, it's not worth your life. You kill the biggest, smartest lion in the planet, it's not worth your life. What do you have to do? You have to make restitution, you have to pay for it. Money. And then it goes into the law, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, and so on and so forth. From here we learn that eye for eye doesn't literally mean physical eye for physical eye. It literally explains to you that it's monetary compensation. But then, then Rabotai, the Chidush is this. After we hear eye for eye, break for break, tooth for a tooth, it says again, on verse 21, It says, one who strikes an animal shall make restitution, and one who strikes a person shall be put to death. I don't understand. You already said this before. On verse 17, you said if you strike a person, you kill a person, you have to kill them. And 18, you said if you kill an animal, you have to make restitution. Why mention it again a couple of verses later, both of them in the same verse? In verse 21, if you strike an animal, you have to pay restitution. If you strike a person, you're put to death. There's nothing... That's duplicating the Torah for no reason. There has to be a reason. Here, Rabotai, the Torah is teaching us Musar. The Torah is teaching us Musar, telling us, if the reason why you killed the animal wasn't because you were protecting for your own life, the lion wasn't trying to kill you. You're just hunting for fun. If you killed the sheep or the cow, or the dog, or whatever it is, because you're angry, and you don't work on yourself, just know, you're eventually going to kill a person. The reason why it's mentioned again, Abutai, is because if he kills an animal, he has to pay restitution. Meaning, he has to do tshuva. That's the restitution. Why? Because if he doesn't do tshuva, the next sin is going to follow. What? He's going to kill a person. And for that, he's going to lose his life. For that, he's going to lose his life. First, you lost money, and you were given an opportunity to do tshuva. Second time, when it's a person, you have to, that's it, you've lost your right to live. That's the Torah teaching us Musar Abutai. It is a cost to our anger. We're almost finished. So far, you understand everything? Now, Darizal, Allah Shalom. Well, technically, Rizal actually says, says that, what's the tikkun for wasting seed? No, no, there's amount of fasts. That's a way to do it. What's the tikkun for it? The tikkun for wasting seed is 84 fasts. Fasting 84 times.
So, if a person weighs seed according to the Shulchan Aruch, it's considered the biggest sin in the Torah. It's considered the biggest sin in the Torah. But, the Arizal says, you can fix it. How? Fasting 84 times. Not in a row, because you need to survive the whole 84 fasts. But a way that you can fast, meaning that if you fast twice a week, Every Monday and Thursday, you do that for enough times. You get to 84, but that's for a single time of wasting seed. And that's for what the Ariza calls the, the Shulchan Aruch calls the biggest sin in the Torah. But the same Arizal said that that's just for a single time you wasted seed. But the sin of anger is 150 fasts. Why? Because the Torah tells us anger will only lead you to sin. Meaning that once you're angry, many sins followed for sure. For sure many sins followed. You could have wasted seed, you could have killed, you could have this, you could have... Every sin in the book becomes on your top ten list. Why? All of Gehenom is in your head now. Now, I'm not talking about angry, like you were angry inside and you controlled yourself. No, that's a mitzvah. You controlled yourself, chazak I'm talking about you lost your mind. I'm talking about you broke something. I'm talking about you threw something. You, you acted on your anger. That's what I'm talking about. Like I said, Torah doesn't talk about somebody who never gets angry because that person is usually dead. It doesn't exist. Everybody gets angry. The point is, anger that gets out of control. That Rabotai de Ariza says 150 fasts. 150 fasts. Because all of the sins that followed it, you allowed yourself to become pretty much target number one for the Yetzirah to, to navigate you to make all these other sins. You've allowed yourself to become vulnerable to potentially lose all of your wisdom. All the Torah that you learned in your life, you can lose it in a second. You've allowed the closest relationships that you have in your life going to a situation of risk because the ones that suffer the most are the people that are closest to you. The people that suffer the most from your anger and your bad midot are the ones that are closest to you. It's not the clerk at the supermarket. It's not the uh, gas station uh, attendant that you see once a week. No, it's your wife, it's your husband, it's your kids, it's your colleagues, it's your partners. They suffer from you. Your anger is putting everyone's life in jeopardy. So now, a person that understands this needs to understand what is it going to cost me if I continue this. So this book, which we haven't even touched on yet, but I'll talk a little bit about it and then we'll sum it up for the night. And continue more tomorrow, Bezat Hashem. You literally see all of the Chachamim in the beginning. Usually when you have Askamot, usually when you have like people recommending a book, usually it's one, two, three, four, five, ten rabbis. One or two are giants, and the rest of them are usually 
friends of the writer, of the author, or they know him, but they're not usually as big. Here you see one big name after another. And the reason why is because the author here is Tamil Chacham Gadol, it's a big Tamil Chacham, but also one that compiled all of the Deot, all of the opinions of all the Chachamim that have ever discussed the topic. Now the first almost 200 pages, maybe 150, 60 pages or so, talks about the solution. But not in a normal way. In a way that is very general. So when you first see that the Stipe Gaon says that he would, said himself, writes himself, he would regularly study this book of this series, specifically this book out of the whole series. Rav Oyerbach, Tzatzal, says, I enjoy these books a great deal. I bless the author. He opened the eyes. He opened, he's saying he's opened his own eyes. Rav Feinstein, Rav Yechiel Michel Feinstein, Tzatzal, says that he studied this, this book regularly. Rav Shpadron, Rav Ovadia, all the Tzal, Baruch Hashem, says the Mamash, this is something that is extraordinary. Specifically, Rav Ovadia says that this specific book would be a great help to many rabbis and public speakers. This is specifically something for everyone, but Rav Ovadia says this is something that should be studied by speakers. Probably talking about me, so it says Chachamim are bigger than Nevi'im. Tamit Chacham is more significant than a prophet. So anyway, the first 150 or so pages, you see different Ma'amarim, different things from the giants of all throughout the generations, Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbeinu Yonah, the Rosh, the Arizal, the Chatam Sofer, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Marsha, the Ramchal, Baal Shem Tov, I mean, if there, if there were anything of significance of Am Yisrael, they mentioned something. He's mentioned in the book, and they say, the solution. What's the solution? Learn Musar. Learn Musar. Without Musar, you'll be continu- you'll continuously drink poison for the rest of your life with no cure in sight. The Chida says... Scholars who don't want to learn Musar are generally arrogant about their learning and consider themselves to be great scholars. They show disrespect to the elders and great scholars of their generation. They're not careful to pray properly. They blemish their mouths and eyes and so on. He says the scholars, the people that learn Torah, but they don't use Musar as the foundation. These people are not even, they're not scholars at all. They're fake scholars. Why? Because they make mistakes that even... Ignorant people don't make. They don't watch their eyes. They don't watch their mouth. They make fun of the big chachamim. Of Shlomo Eger, almost 200 years ago, writes that Learn every day from a book of Musar. Don't deviate from this practice, even on Shabbat and Yom Tov. 
Because a man's purpose is to implant fear of Hashem in his heart. He says his father, Rabbi Akiva Yigil, would write down in a notebook everything he did that day. And every evening he would investigate his own actions to see if they were done correctly. Meaning it's not just learning Musar, it's not something that you learn superficially just to read it like it's a novel. Musar is something that you have to do with out loud, with passion, getting into it, meditating on what the words are. It's, it's deep. It's not something that you just read. You read over and over again. Rav Zundel from Salant says it was a sacred practice to study works of Musar every day with great contemplation. He would also review verses about fear and love of Hashem and statements from Chazal that burned fear, fear into his heart. Many times he would leave the city to go to the fields and learn and review words of fear of Musar. And then he would take, he would pick a single verse or a parable or a statement from Chazal and go over it over and over again. Two hours a day. This is one of the G'dolei Adol, study two hours a day, just Musal. If he studied two hours a day, Musal, we have to study 200 hours a day. Now, Rav Simcha Ziv, also known as Rav Simcha of Mikelem, says that experience has shown us that the more these yeshiva students studied Musar, the deeper their understanding of Gemara and commentaries are. Studying Musar with understanding has a tremendous benefit on learning Gemara. Why? Because the Vilna Gaon specifically says, the Torah teaches us that you cannot become a true vessel of Torah until you fix your midot. Meaning you can learn Torah, but it won't last. It won't last. But once you learn how to fix yourself as far as midot, you learn Musar, all of a sudden the rest of your learning starts hitting home. You start, you start, you're able to retain it. You're able to use it. You're able to take it and use it in your actual life. And he says, he continues, only fools disparage wisdom and musal. He said, it's understandable that the fools do this. Why? Because musar is true wisdom. And fool, people that are fools are obviously running away from wisdom. So now, it continues for a while, but we're running out of time. The same Rav Simcha Sisif Mikelem says that the foundation of all bad midot is selfishness. Loving yourself too much. Unfortunately, in the Western world, this is one of the most popular teachings in the world, especially from these coaches, 
and uh, and different types of motivational speakers. They constantly teach people, love yourself, love yourself, love yourself. This is the foundation. This is the root of bad midot. Loving yourself too much. You love yourself, you think that the world's going to dance to your tune. You love yourself, you think that the world is supposed to comply with your needs. You love yourself, you're going to forget to do the most important thing that a human being is supposed to do in this world, which is give. You only have what you're able to give and what you're willing to give. That's all you have. If you can't give it because you don't have it, that means you don't have it. If you don't want to give it, that means you don't have it. Even though your bank account says something, it means nothing. You don't actually have it. What you have in this world is what you're actually able to give. The problem is that when a person is selfish and loves himself too much, he's not able to remove himself and his own self-interest from the equation. He's never able to empathize. Now if a person reduces the I in his perspective, meaning himself, and remembers that there's also a him, meaning there's other people, not just himself, there's her, there's him, there's them, not just all about himself, and he tries to bring his love of self closer to the love of others, and to bridge the gap between them, he will rise accordingly to purify the purge of his character traits. This is the secret to the success of the Gdole Adol, who fixed and beautified their character traits. And this is also the secret of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva's words were, and you should love your friend as yourself. This is the Torah's most important principle. And the words of Hillel was, what you don't want done to you, don't do to your friend. This is the entire Torah, and the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. This is what Hillel said. This is the foundation of both of these important statements. Rabbi Akiva and Hillel Azaken is becoming selfless, not selfish. Selfless. The secret of all the giants, all the Gdole whether it's Rav Ovadia, of, uh, um, of Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, Iger, Rambam, Ramban, all of these giants, the ones that made something out of themselves, that made build a legacy, Ravigdo Miller, is that they've decided early on to remove themselves from the equation and start worrying about people, start worrying about everybody else. It's called Mesirut Nefesh, self-sacrifice. This is the most brilliant thing that you can learn in your life because... Once a person becomes selfless, then his opinion is unbiased. He officially becomes the source of truth. Because now, the problem with people's advice, if you remember, we talked a little bit about advice last week. People love to give advice. It's very easy to give advice. It's fun to give advice. It's fun to tell people what to do. Problem is that most advice is, 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 is worth nothing. It's worth less than nothing. Because it's biased advice. They tell you what they want for themselves, not what's good for you. They don't know how to empathize. When they give you advice, they tell you, yeah, yeah, I think you should get that job. Why do you think I should get that job? Because it makes more money. Yeah, but it also removes me from the, having the ability to have 
a relationship because I'm working nine hours, uh, you know, nine hundred hours a week. <laughs> I'm not able to move. I'm not able to eat. Yeah, but you have a lot of money. Who cares about money? I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to serve Hashem. So really, they're giving you advice to get a job because they want more money. And they think that you should get more money, and that should be your, your, your life's goal. Oh, no, no, I wouldn't marry her. Why wouldn't you marry her? Yeah, I think she's uh, too old. Yeah, but every, you know, why do you think she's too old? She's the same age as me. Yeah, you should get somebody younger than her. Why? Why do you think you should get somebody younger than her? Yeah, maybe if you get somebody younger, maybe because th- this guy's perverted thoughts in his head. And he thinks that you should have perverted thoughts in your head. In a sense, so they're not giving you advice based on your perspective. They're giving you advice based on their perspective. So once a person becomes selfless and starts caring about the world around him, then he becomes the source of truth. And the reason why is because now his advice has nothing to do with him. What do you think I should do? Well, give me the equation. Give me the... I need to know. I can't, get, I can't tell you what to do based on me. Who cares about me? I'm not you. I'm not going to live your life. I'm not going to deal with the consequences of whatever decision you're going to make. You are, so you need to give me all of the pieces. Some people ask me all the time, oh, you think I should take this job? You think I should get married? You think I, uh, What do you mean? Yeah, what do you think? Say, uh, a lotto ticket, yes, no. You win, you lost. It's a lot of factors that go into it. You need to know what's going on. Some people tell me, oh, yeah, I want to convert. Why? Why do you want to convert? Oh, I like Jews. Okay, so I like, I like steak. Doesn't mean I want to become a steak. What do you mean? Why do you want to convert? Why do you want to... Oh, yeah, I like Jews. I like Israel. Okay, so go to Israel. Just because you like Jews and you like Israel doesn't mean you need to convert. Do you like the Torah? Oh, I don't know the Torah. Okay, so you don't know what it means to be a Jew then. It's better you don't convert. Just go to Israel, move to Israel, and uh, enjoy. What do you like about being a Jew if you don't know anything about being a Jew? So the point is that people sometimes don't really know what they want and how they want and the people that they go for advice on don't usually ask the right questions because people tell oh, you want to convert? Yeah, convert. It sounds good. What do you mean it sounds good? For who? Oh yeah, get married. Sounds good. For who? Oh yeah, get divorced. Sounds good. For who? You have to make sure. So once a person is selfless, then their advice, their information is unbiased, doesn't have any self-interest, and that's when they can actually start helping people because that's when they can actually start looking at things objectively because they don't have a, uh, any, any, any horse in the race. And that's what made the Gdolim. That was the ingredient that made the Gdolim Gdolim. If you guys all heard the story of Rabbi Akiva, he had 24,000 students. One time one of his students didn't show up to the yeshiva. He didn't show up for a little while. Rabbi Akiva noticed. It wasn't the biggest student. It wasn't the smallest student. It was just a student. He didn't know what happened to him. He went to his house and he found out that the student was sick. The Talmud was sick. But out of embarrassment, he jumped out of the bed and wanted to like welcome the rabbi. No, no, no. No, I'll come, I'll come. And Rabbi Akiva came there and visited him and made him feel better. And the Talmud told Rabbi Akiva... You know, you saved my life. Being sick was one thing. But feeling bad about myself that nobody came to visit me made me really want to die. And that's when Rabbi Akiva made an halakha. Someone who does not go to visit his friend when he's sick 
is the same thing as he murdered him. Same thing as he murdered him. Shofech dam. Why? Because being sick is already difficult. But being sick and no one cares, that's like a nightmare come true. That's like a nightmare come true. And that's one of the most difficult things that people deal with when it comes to going through a some type of mashber, some type of uh, uh, difficulty in their life, whether it's a financial uh, meltdown or a career issue or divorce or something like that, usually the most difficult part is realizing that you're alone. Dealing with pain was one thing. Dealing with losing money was another thing. But realizing that all my friends were enemies, that was the worst. That was the worst. Because I never asked for friends. You volunteered to be my friend, pretended to be my friend, and now I realize that you really weren't my friend. It makes you feel like the worst. So that's the most important thing that a person needs to know, is that if they're gonna, they want to have a chance of being a decent human being with a chance of Olam Abba, rule number one is become selfless. Work on becoming selfless. And that's also going to create a solution. It's part of the cure for the problem of anger. Because once a person is selfless, that means that they're always thinking about everybody around them. If you're thinking about people around you, you're going to think twice before you're going to act on your anger. You're going to be angry in life. Anger happens. Stomach ache happens, headaches happen, uh, annoying things happen, flat tires happen, bills happen, things happen in life. Anger happens. The reality is that how you act on it is your choice. That's your choice. If you become selfless and you start thinking about the world around you, it's much easier to control that anger. Because now you're thinking, wait a minute. I'm angry, I want to break half the house. But, it's not fair to her. It's not fair to him. It's not fair to them. It's not fair, it's not, it's not, I have anger, yes. But it's not their fault. I'm angry because somebody cut me off. Why should the person that's cooking and cleaning for me suffer for that also? Why should my kids suffer? They didn't have anything to do with it. Why should my employees suffer? They didn't have anything. Why do all these people, 99% of the people, have nothing to do with it? Why should they suffer that uh, somebody else cut you off? Why should the clerk get an attitude because your husband didn't pay attention to you today? What is it his, what's his, his fault? So that's the most important thing where a person realizes that being selfless has such major benefits. When it comes to being a person of truth, but also becomes comes to being a person that doesn't have as much anger, or at least can control it. So this at least will give us an understanding of just one part of it. Bezat Hashem, tomorrow we'll go over a little bit more into the details of some of the costs of being angry. Also, what it means to uh, being a person that doesn't get angry often, but also it's a person that's not uh, uh, easy to pacify. Why that could actually be potentially worse or better. In some aspects, it's worse. Because it takes a lot, you know, your, your anger, you keep it for much longer. You could potentially be one of these people that could shoot up a school. 
These people that shoot up schools, what do you think? They just get angry one day? No, they've been keeping that anger for years. For months. Most people probably didn't know they were angry. They kept it inside, they kept it inside, they kept it inside. This guy slapped him in the face. This guy uh, stole his hat. This guy kicked him. This guy ran into him. This guy made fun of him. And he kept it inside, kept it inside, kept it inside. A year, two years after he gets bullied... Everyone stopped. All the bullies uh, moved on with their life. They forgot about what happened. But he kept the anger the whole time. And one day, some uh, dog barked at him. And that was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. He's like, all right, I'm taking uh, my parents' Uzis and machetes and everything. I'm going to kill everybody. What does that have to do with everybody else? What's what's going on? No, no. Because he didn't get over it. So in some aspects of it, it's worse. But some aspects of it, it's better. Why better? Because if the person takes a while to get angry, that means that he already can control his anger to some extent. Which means that it's easier to help him never get angry in the first place. It's easier to help him in general. So that's the part of it that's better. 